You know, uh, the first Peter begins this way in the first chapter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his grace, great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that particular theme, as it begins, this letter to this group of people that were aliens, strangers, uh, who had been dispersed into a foreign land. They were living in a place that was, that was new to them. And things were different then, but they were going to become a lot worse in the days to come. And in the midst of that, he, he tells them that you have a hope, a living hope, that will always go with you. And in many ways, when we hear about things like that, it causes us to, to, uh, to wonder just what does that really mean in life. I've entitled the message this morning, Comforting and Confusing. And I even battled it within myself to decide which words should come first, confusing and comforting or comforting and confusing. Because often uh, as we go through life, life isn't always fair. Have you experienced that? Have you noticed that? Maybe not only in your life, maybe in lives around you, and you recognize how, how can people be filled with hope which you can find in so many different ways, but it's an unshakable confidence in God's plan for you. And you're thinking, well, I don't like God's plan for me, and so my confidence in that plan is not really unshakable. In fact, I'd like, it, like him to change it. And as you think about it, and I've shared this before as we've introduced this letter, is that as things were now, they were not going to get better. They were going to be getting worse for them. But in the midst of that, he says, I want you to be hopeful, constantly hopeful, unshakable in your confidence of God's plan. And, and I want you to understand that hope is really the conviction that no matter what life is happening now or in the days to come, it, eventually it's going to be better because it's going to be lived out according to God's perfect plan for us. But that is in a timetable that we cannot always predict as far as when that will happen for us. And as he shares these words uh, throughout this letter, he gets very practical in the sense he says, I, I want to talk to you about the various aspects of your life. And he says, uh, I want you to understand that in, in the world you live, in your society, uh, I want you to be hopeful, even though for many of you, you have been enslaved. In the Roman Empire, 60 million of them, the, the, the majority of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. And here's my game plan for you as you live out a life filled with confidence according to God's plan, my plan for you is to submit. And, and, and I'm sure as they heard those words, read those words, they, they were confused. I, wait a minute, you, you want us to arrange ourselves under, which is literally what it means to submit, and, and follow with certain exceptions the plans of those who have their heavy hand upon us. And he said, yes, because this mirrors your submission to me, even when you don't understand everything I'm doing in your life, but you, you trust me. So this is my plan for you. Submit to those in, in, in your world, in your, in your society that have positional power of you. And then he talked to another part of the, the lifestyle that we live. It's not only in the larger society, but also uh, in the workplace. I, I want you also to arrange yourself under those who have positions of responsibility and leadership over your life. And, and I want to even push you a little bit I want you to trust me in my unshakable plan for you, to live out my plan for you, to show to the world that something's more important than what is happening to you circumstantially, but what is happening in you. And I want you to submit to them, even when they're, as he puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2, even when they're not very gentle with you, they're not good to you, and they're even unreasonable. And when we think about that, basically all of us, just naturally, it's not, uh, it's not a surprise to be confused with those kind of words to us. We say, well, that's not fair. 
And all of us could probably tell unfair stories, but what always gets me is when some people's unfair stories are a lot deeper than mine. And it kind of humbles me, right? And when you think, of, wow, now that's, that's really unfair. I'll tell you just a little bit of the story. There's a longer story too, but uh, let me introduce you to Michael Morton. Uh, he was your average American. He was married with a five-year-old son. He lives in a suburban part of Austin, and he had a white-collar job. He came home in August of 1986 to find police at his home and his wife murdered. She had been beaten with a bat and then covered with pillows. The prior day, they had just celebrated their wedding anniversary. He, he had left a note with her saying, I just, I just love you deeply, and I wish we could have been more intimate last night. Well, when he showed up, immediately the police saw him as the prime suspect. And they not only accused him and, and put him in custody and put him on trial, but he was convicted of the murder of his wife. He lost custody of his son, five-year-old son, and so for decades he was in prison. But then all of a sudden they discovered some evidence that had not really come to light and they, they saw a bandana filled with blood right in the alley where they lived and they decided that they would do some DNA testing on it. And, and they discovered also in their procedure of checking out the evidence that not only was that blood that was on that bandana not Michael Morton's blood, but they discovered that another woman had suffered the same exact murder the same way with a bat beaten to death with pillows covering her uh, just weeks after this experience of Michael's wife while he was in prison. And, and there had been some other evidence that had been suppressed. For instance, that five-year-old son had been asked that what happened. He, he saw that horrific experience. And he said, there's a monster that came in and killed my mommy. Well, was it your dad? He said, no, it was not my daddy. But all of that had been suppressed in the court. And he had been in prison for decades. And the only opportunity he had for parole, because he was a model, whatever that means, um, one in the, in the prison, that they had offered him the possibility of parole, but he would have to admit that he had committed the crime because he had always claimed his innocence. And he said, this is the only thing that keeps me sane because I know I'm innocent. When all this evidence came to light, it was brought back to trial and he was released. Now, just think for a moment. Your five-year-old son is now in his what? In his 30s at least. You have not had the opportunity to raise him. And maybe after all those words and the experience of having your father in prison, maybe he began to doubt what he saw and really he thought his father had killed his mother. And now he's coming to Grace Hills Church and we're going to talk about God's comfort and God's plan. And you should have no unshakable confidence. You should, you should have unshakable confidence in the reality that God is in control and he has what's best for you. Well, in many ways, that's what many of them were going to be experiencing as they were to read and reread and reread these words that, that they ought to experience them, that they ought to see themselves as blessed because God in his great mercy had given them a living hope. 
And, and the words of hope and the words of instruction were obviously comforting, but they had to be filled with confusion as well. Well, well, in the middle of this section in which he's speaking about them living it out in the workplace and in their society, he, he, he now goes on and gives them, uh, again, practical words as far as how to live that out and also how to see themselves. And, and this is what I want to do rapidly this morning is we also take opportunity to remember well, how can we un- have unshakable confidence? Because we follow a Savior, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, as one who, who even as we share that, un, that, that just unfair story that shocks us to our core about losing everything when you were innocent, that that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Because no matter how well we have lived our life, none of us here would say that, that, that we have been perfect or we have never crossed the line. But, but Jesus died as a criminal who had committed no what? Committed no crime. And he died not for himself, but he died for us. So in the midst of that, Peter writes to them. And, and, and here I just wanted to share with you just really quickly what he had to say to you. Here's some words for us who truly believe, which put our confidence in not only Jesus as our Savior and Lord, but his plan for us. He, he says, look, at I want you to understand that you can find favor with God. And I'm sure that Michael Morton didn't, didn't feel that he had found favor with anyone because he had unjustly been put in prison. Also, we have, we have an exalted thing that God has called us to live out. He said, you can follow an, an exo- awesome example in your life. And I'm sure in the bitterness of what he was going through that, that he couldn't see any example to follow. But, but as you think about Jesus, Jesus has left us an example because he's gone through everything that we've gone through, but in even much darker ways because of what was done for him. Then thirdly, you can hurt on the outside, but you can be healed on the inside. And then finally, we have time, you can have a shepherd and guardian of your soul. That which is really reflective of who you are, you have a shepherd and you have a guardian. Well, let's look at it. We, we look at the text this morning. Beginning at 1 Peter chapter 2, at verse 19. And this is what he says to them who are, who are struggling, living out a life in which People aren't very gentle with them. They, they, they aren't good to them. They're unreasonable to them. And he says this. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So twice in this passage, he says, look, I want you to understand, you can have favor with God. You can have favor with God. And really, when I hear that, that, that I always want to ask the question, I say, well, how? I want to experience favor. I want to be on a, a level of living that is, uh, is maybe better than anybody else. I want God's favor in my life. It's interesting how this passage used by many, even in, in my business, they'll talk about certain people in ministry having God's favor. And it could be because of the size of the church, their ability to preach, or their ability to sing, or whatever it might be. And they'll say, obviously God's favor is upon them. And they usually define that person who has favor when things are doing very, very well in their life, Right? You must have the favor of God. Just look, you are prospering. You are doing really well. You are exalted in the, in the eyes and opinions of other people. But is that what he says here? 
He says, no, you find favor with God when you're suffering. Anybody want to sign up for that? Okay. Does anybody want to take Michael Merton's place? And yet, this is what he says. He said, you find favor with God when you're suffering. And then we back up. He said, well, you know, I must be, you know, suffering, you know, for uh, maybe an, an, an amazing reasons. He says, well, no, I want you to understand that you have found favor with God when you suffer for not doing anything wrong. Wait a minute. That's not fair. It, it, it's normally when we suffer, at least normally when I suffer, I've done something foolish. You know, I've done some things I shouldn't have done. You know, I wasn't very careful with a power tool and it nicked me. In fact, that happened to me yesterday. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, those are things that we normally we suffer when, when certain things happen to you. And you can look back and, and I hate to do this. When I look around to blame, the only person I can blame is who? Myself. But that's not what he's saying here. He said, you find favor with God when you bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And I put that in our outline this morning. By suffering when you don't do anything wrong. That's just not fair. Why would he say that? Because in the midst of that, that's when God's people who have unshakable confidence in God's plan recognize our joy is in the Lord. And he, he gives us that which others cannot even explain or imagine, that in the midst of a world that's broken, and when broken things happen to us, even unjustly, we trust in him. And, and just in case they didn't get it or we didn't get it, he, did, he says it in the other way in verse 20. For what quiet is there if when you sin or are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right and suffer. So it's one thing to recognize, well, I didn't do anything wrong. Well, you know, why am I in trouble? I think I've told you before, you know, Mark had a, had a my, the son who was playing guitar up here today, okay, he, um, he had a certain reputation in our home. We had four kids, and when something broke, there was one word out of my mouth and occasionally out of ours, but it was every time out of my Mark, you know, it was always, it was always Mark who broke it, right? Uh, but the reality is he didn't always break it. He just always got blamed for breaking it, right? And, and, and the reality, that's just not fair. But he says, look, at, I want you to understand that, that when, you, when you suffer unjustly for not doing anything wrong or even for doing what is right, I mean, he didn't always get the credit for doing something right either. And, and what he said, I want you to understand in a, in a much larger way, that's how I want you to live. And when you live that way, suffering in the right way, you experience favor from me. You experience the, the smile of God on your heart. So we look at our life. Let's not be like everyone else in this world, always, always complaining about what's wrong in this world. And always, always whining about people not treating us justly or fair. I mean, do whatever we can to, to right wrongs, but the, rec the recognition that we live in a broken world and bad things are going to happen to all kinds of people. And, and when we suffer unjustly for not doing anything wrong, and when we suffer for doing what is right, we find favor with God. 
In case you want to know what the original word for favor, it's the word kairos, which is the word grace. You experience God's grace, his unmerited favor, his unmerited goodness in your life. So words to us that are comforting but confusing because it just doesn't seem to fit with how we ought to think life ought to be. And let me just tell you, there's going to be a time in God's eternal plan where the world that's wrong will be made right when he comes to reign in this world. But, but then he goes on, and he says this in verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. And when we think about whenever we suffer, our Savior can relate to our suffering because he went through suffering. And when he did, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now, I put this in your outline as far as a bullet point. You can follow an awesome example. The word for example here is an interesting word in the original language. Um, I don't need to tell you the exact word because it, we don't, it can't, doesn't relate to any English word we have here. But it, it really has the idea literally to write under. But it really what it means in our understanding, it's when you, when you take something and you're able to trace it. Uh, some have defined it this way, that... What he has here is that when you place under a sheet of tracing paper a pattern and the original images can be clearly duplicated. Now, in the olden days, I don't know what they do now because I haven't been in grade school for at least a few years, is that sometimes you would learn letters by tracing them, remember? You would learn to write the alphabet by following someone else's plan. Now, my wife really wants me to go back to, to elementary school because she can't read my writing anymore. But the thing is, you know, you had, you had in fact, I actually got a award for penmanship when I was young. Some people don't believe that. But, but you know, I can't even re- read my writing after a half hour. I go, what did I just write there? Okay. But you, you could trace the letters to get it perfect. And, and what do you say now? I want you to understand that I, I've put Jesus as that model as that pattern. And I want to have you take your life and I want you to trace it after his. And even this, he says, I've given you an example to follow in his steps. And the word steps there has the idea of tracks that you might walk on to go from point A to point B. And if you ever walked in the snow and someone's ahead of you and you don't want to go too far in the snow, what you want to do is you want to put your feet where someone else has what? Put their feet. Because it, it's already been pressed down, you know, that's now safe if you step in their steps. And so as you think about God comforting us, he, he's given us something. He's given us favor when we follow his plan. And, and, and when we suffer, we suffer for that which is not doing something that was wrong, but doing that which is right. And not be a surprise at times that we, we're going to be just like Jesus was, suffer for doing Nothing wrong. And, and, and so he set that example for us so that we might show to the world there's something much more important than what is happening temporally, but what's going to happen eternally. And, and then he says, oh, in case you just don't remember something about Jesus, I want to tell you some things about how he lived. Give you an example to follow in a set, verse 22, who committed no sin. So I, I have a few don'ts and then one do for us as we think about, well, what is the example that Jesus gave us? He, and this is not surprising. He says um, he committed no sin. So what's the first don't? Don't what? Don't sin. I think I've shared this before. Um, I, I remember hearing about 
people talking about the church service afterwards, and normally what people talk about the church service afterwards is where are we going to eat? Where are we going to what? Where are we going to eat? But let's say you, you push it a little bit further beyond what you're going to eat. We say, well, what do you think of the pastor's message? And he says, well, it was all right. Well, 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 what did he talk about? Which sometimes people can't even remember what they talked about right afterwards. But he said, well, he talked about sin. Well, what was his point about sin? And the simple answer was, he's against it, right? <laughs> well, you know, this is, this is the truth for us as we think about Jesus. You know, he's against sin. He, he's against things that are wrong, that are evil, that, that break the heart of God, that, that hurt others. Don't sin. The word here comes from a word simply means to miss the mark. You know, it's uh, having a target and you're trying to hit the target and you miss the target. And the target is, I want you to do God's will in your life. Don't sin. And, and, and of course, Jesus, he, was, he made him who knew no sin to take on our sin. He did not sin. So we, we all need to be against sin. And then, then he goes on this and he says... Uh, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. You know, sometimes when we feel maybe we've arrived a certain level in our Christian life, we say, you know, I don't do, as, I don't, I don't do a lot of bad things anymore. And uh, some people come to that place, they actually theologically they think they come to a place where they don't sin anymore. Uh, well, they say, well, I'm, I might make a few mistakes, but I don't sin anymore. But, you know, the, the easiest way to determine that God still is working in your life, needs to work in your life, it's just think about the things that come out of your, what? Your mouth, right? And so there was no deceit in his mouth. The, the word deceit, I'm going to give you a lot of things from what the word means here. I don't mean to overdo that, but the, the word deceit here comes from a word from which we get bait and a fishing hook. So uh, uh, being deceitful in your language is when you try to be uh, to be. Well, you're treacherous and tricking people to do something by using your words in such a way that kind of lead them down the wrong path. And, and really, that's what happens when you're trying to catch a fish on a line, right? You know, that fish, if he knew better, wouldn't take the bait, right? W wouldn't put his mouth on that hook. Because when that happens, it's going to lead them <laughs> in a way he doesn't want to be led. And, and so we need to be very careful with our words because sometimes our words lead people down the wrong path. Jesus never did that. He always pointed them to the truth because he was the truth. So don't sin, don't be deceitful. And it says, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. I put it very simply here, don't, don't speak evil of others. It really has the idea of piling it on someone, taking your language to make people feel horrible about themselves, or if not them horrible about the sin, because they know who they are. Jesus, Jesus knew who he was, but it made other people think horrible about Jesus because of the words they said about him. They claimed Jesus, who was God, that he was a blasphemer, that he being a man made himself out to be equal with God. Well, Jesus did that, but the reason he could do it, because he was what? He was God. And so they would try to kick people out of the, the synagogue, out of the temple, because you can't follow him and follow Yahweh. And Jesus said, I am. I am Yahweh. And so as we think about what does it mean to follow the example of Jesus, we need to be against sin, don't sin. We need not to be deceitful with our, our, our words, our, our language. We desperately do not want to pile it on others. Don't hurt people with your words. Don't change people's opinion 
of someone by the things you say about them. And that's, that's, that's the horrific thing of slander, right? I've tried to coin a new phrase here, this good slander. If you ever, if you ever discover anything good about me, you, you, have, you have the permission to tell everybody, right? Now, you might have to look hard, but, you know, the thing is when we find something that's not right in someone, we can just hold it to ourselves, right? And that's what I mean. Don't revile others. Don't threaten, he goes on there in, in the text in the New American Standard. And, and um, while suffering, he uttered no threats. You know, the Bible talks about that. We need, and this is, this is the challenge. And, and if you're in areas of responsibility where you're an authority, then you have the ability to, 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 uh, to dispense judgment on people. But let's be honest. There are so many times where we're trying to control other people with, with statements I'm going, to, I'm going to get you for this. I'm going to get even. I'm going to do something to you because of what you've done to me or to others. Jesus didn't get caught up in that. He didn't usher threats. When he had all power and authority to bring down the, the powers of heaven to right the wrongs that were done to him and to anybody else. And then finally... Uh, he began, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges right, righteously. And, and so with the don'ts, you know, I think I had how many account? I had four don'ts and one do. Don't sin, don't be deceitful, don't speak evil of others, don't threaten. And this is the one I'd camp on if we had more t- time, but do entrust yourself to your heavenly father. And that is the amazing example that Jesus gave, who, who was fully God, but when he left the throne of heaven and the realm of heaven, he put himself in a dependent relationship with his heavenly father. And in the midst of a world that was wrong, when all kinds of things that were done unjustly to him, he chose to entrust himself, and it's in the present tense here, he chose to continually entrust himself to his heavenly father. This is another word that's interesting in the original language because it's not the, it's not the common word for faith. It, it, is a, it is a word that really means to commit yourself to. And it really kind of, I think, speaks pretty graphically. But it, trusting or, or putting your faith in means you're relying upon someone, you're depending upon someone, you're confident what they can do or are able to do. And, and that's a beautiful word and description of what our relationship with God is. We we really have confidence that God is able to come through, that God is able and God is capable and God is willing and God is powerful enough. But the world here really has the idea of committing yourself to, which means, okay, you realize that theologically or intellectually or logically about God, God is powerful enough to handle whatever you're going through. But now what are you going to do with it? You've got to give it to him. You know, we always use words like that. You know, you know, maybe we're filled with anxiety or worry, and someone says, well, just don't worry about it. Anybody ever say something really helpful like that to you? I'm kidding, but, you know, but maybe you said it to yourself, all right? And so I know I shouldn't, I, I know I shouldn't worry about it, but you hold on to it, right? The Bible talks in 1 Peter, this, this same letter, cast your, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Well, what he's saying, we all know we ought to give God our cares, but we hold on to them. And the idea is he kept entrusting himself. He kept committing himself to put his trust in the living God. And that's why 
the Garden of Gethsemane when, when he pleaded with his father, will you take this cup from me? But your will be done, not, my, not mine. And that's the idea there, committing yourself to what you know is true and then giving it to him. So as you think about God is comforting to us and he, he gives us a game plan to live out our faith. And, and, and again, that, that is comforting because it's it probably the, 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 the emotional trauma of just not knowing what to do, right? That, that, that is just a horrific experience. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And God, here's what you can do. God is telling, this is what you can do. You can find favor with me by no matter what you're going through, live out my plan for you, which is whether you are being abused by others in ways you can't remove yourself from, just recognize that you have my favor, you have my grace, as long as you're not doing what's wrong and you're doing what is right. And by the way, when you get confused, well, how, how does God want me to live? I, just live like Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, don't sin. Don't be deceitful. You know, don't, don't threaten others. You know, don't, don't speak evil of others, but trust, trust him. And then he goes on, and then he, he says something that actually is probably the most confusing part of this passage. It is comforting, but it's confusing. Verse 24, he says, And he himself, this is Jesus, Jesus himself, bore our sins, the idea of carrying it on, holding that, that, that huge weight of our sin, bore, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Now, you could actually spend a lot of time on that particular verse because it really talks about uh, who Jesus is and what, he, what his work was on the cross, what happened in his substitutionary willingness to sacrifice himself on our behalf, the, the atonement where our sins were completely forgiven, and that's the heart of that. But I, I guess I just want to leave all of us with this idea is that the, the, the main point here is that he was speaking to people that were hurting. In fact, they were going to be hurting more in the days and weeks and months and years to come as the persecutions were, were, were raised up in their intensity. And, and he says, I want you to understand that the biggest, the biggest need in your, in your life has been settled because the burden of your sin has been dealt with on the cross. He bore it all. And he did so that you could live a life completely different than the life you were living before. You can now live it for me and not for yourself. And I want you to understand that by his wounds, as he suffered on the cross, you were healed at that point when you put your faith and trust in him. And so I want us all to recognize that you can hurt on the outside, but you can be healed on the inside. That part of that is, even getting back to that original story that we shared in the beginning. He went through horrific experiences while he was in prison. His, his wife, who he dearly loved, had been brutally murdered. His five-year-old son had been taken from him. And for years, probably, began to wonder, maybe my dad really did that, and I didn't see what I really saw. 
You, you can't change the pain on the outside that he was experiencing. But he, in his heart of hearts, can realize he was hurting on the outside, but he was well on the inside. He was healed. And we diminish the work of Jesus on the cross when we somehow think that when Jesus came here, that if we really trust him and really have faith, all the things that go wrong, he can make right. He is able to heal every disease. But was that promised by Jesus when he came? Is this a, this is a physical healing? As some have said, is this healing the atonement? Now, Kenneth Copeland is, is one of the major players in the healing movement in the Christian world. Let me, let me just read to you what he did in March of 2020, right as COVID was expanding in terms of everyone's awareness of how devastating it could be. Televangelist Kenneth Copeland made the news this week in connection with the coronavirus. According to several news sources, Copeland claimed to heal all of his followers through the TV Newsweek reported. Televangelist Kenneth Copeland told viewers of his ministry's program that they were healed of the coronavirus disease as he prayed while asking them to touch their television screens to receive the spiritual healing, Copeland stated on his program. Thank you, Lord Jesus. He received your healing. Now say it. I take it. I have it. It's mine. I thank you and praise you for it. According to the word of God, I am healed. And I consider not my own body. I consider not symptoms in my body, but only that which God has promised. Now, I believe God can heal, and I believe God does heal, and I've seen times where God has healed directly in result of praying for a person and God sovereignly displaying that was his will for the life. But I have been in many situations where we pray the same kind of prayers, and God did not heal a person. If this were true, that you could put your hands on a TV set and a televangelist could say that you now have been healed of your coronavirus, we could have saved, well, most recently, $1.9 trillion, right? That, that could have happened. We could take everybody out of the hospitals and just leave them vacant. Um, Steve, you'd be out of a job, but I, you know, I appreciate you know, You know, all those kind of things could happen if, if that were true, if, God, if healing, healing was the atonement. And he, even Kenneth Copeland's own life. And uh, Televan, he's been married three times, two of them he divorced. His, his latest wife, Gloria, who also believed in divine healing, uh, came down with bile duct cancer, had multiple seizures, and died with mental dementia. Now, if, if God heals everybody, and of course what usually happens here is you just don't have enough faith. And what, what, what just pains me is when they claim, this is what the Word of God teaches. That God will heal every disease now. And, and, and so then why in Revelation chapter 21, he said, oh, there's coming a time where there's going to be no pain and no tear and no suffering. Because when we think about having hope, it's, it's believing in an, an unshakable way of, and confident of God's plan 
that no matter what our present is, our future is going to be so much better. As that's the promise of God. And if you look at all the apostles in the New Testament, you know, why did the Apostle Paul go through all the suffering he went through? He prayed desperately three times that that, that thorn in the flesh would be taken from him. We are going to suffer in this world. But, but the good news is no matter how much we hurt on the outside, as the hymn writes, it, it can be well with our soul. That we can be healed on the inside because that's the desperate need in our life. He finishes this last section. He says this, For, for you were continually strained like sheep. He's talking about how they were before B.C., before Christ. But now you have... Return to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Uh, the preacher took long, too long in the first three points, so he doesn't have time for the fourth point, all right? But this, this is one just to think about. In your soul, the innermost part of who you are, you have a shepherd. And the Old Testament and New Testament has adjectives for the shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. He's your personal shepherd. He's the shepherd, Psalm 23 says, this shepherd in whom when you put your trust in him, you have no want, which really has the idea you will have no need. He is your, he is your protector. He's your guide. He's your restorer. He cleanses you on the inside. He is the shepherd of your soul. He, he, he's the guardian. It's actually a word from which we get the word bishop or episcopos, episcopos bishop has the idea of he is the administrator of your life. He's the inspector of your life. He's the governor of your life. He, he is the one who leads your life. So as, as we live in a world at times, in our own world or a larger world, in which it's confusing. God, you know, why don't you show up? And, and, and if, we, if, if any of us or a number of us were in charge of this world, we'd have all kinds of different plans. And most of those plans probably wouldn't be the best plans, right? But when one comes, he's going to have that plan. Because he's going to deal with the deepest need, which is the sin in our heart, and we won't live it out. But in the meantime, in the midst of, of, at times, being more filled with confusion, we can be filled with comfort. Because he is our shepherd, and he is our guardian. So what's the point this morning? I, I put it this way in your outline. In confusing times, be comforted. Or to put it in a simple way that we've entitled the whole book, be hopeful. Be filled with unshakable confidence in God's plan that no matter what's happening now, your future is bright because your future is in his hands. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. We thank you that it's all really about Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And Father, we pray for anyone either online or in person that, that has not made that step of committing themselves, putting their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray very simply that they would admit their need and turn from that which is wrong in their life, their sin. That they would be believe that Jesus Christ is God who died on the cross for our sins and rose again so that we could be forgiven. And then choose to commit to Jesus Christ as the leader, Lord of their life, and the one who saves them from their sin. 
And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.